0: good morning if you have your Bibles why don't you grab them we're going to be today back in Matthew and while you're turning there I'd like to welcome you back if you're a college student I know that lots of the college students are back or some of them are and uh, some I'm sure are arriving today you can be praying for those who are making the trek today uh, but if you uh, are coming back here from Christmas break and I, I hope you had a we missed you I hope you had a great Christmas break I hope you had a a nice time with your family, and I'm glad to see you back today. And if you're a transfer student or a new student uh, who's here today, I just want to invite you to consider making Ridgeview your home while you're here in college. Uh, college is a great time in life, just in general, but it's a great time to learn and grow deep in your faith in Christ. And, um, and this, this church will help you with that. We'll, there's plenty of opportunities for discipleship here plenty of opportunities to serve, plenty of opportunities to be served. Uh, so if you have any questions about that, um, I'll be around at the meal or after, right after this service. I'd love to talk to you, love to answer any questions you might have in regards to that. But um, but yeah, I just really invite you to, to be a part. And again, home groups, uh, Jaden mentioned that when he gave announcements. We're starting off home groups again. We're having a home group at our place tonight, uh, if, if you'd... Aren't a part of a, another home group? Invite you to c- come to that. It's a big mix of people, college students, all the way up to uh, to to me, <laughs> and even beyond. Uh, so, if you'd like to come, that's uh, our. You can contact us to get our address. That starts at six o'clock. We share a meal together, and then we uh, we, we basically unpack the word together and and worship and pray. Alright, so our text today, we're back in Matthew, our text is the first seven verses of chapter seven, so, I mean, I'm sorry, the first six verses, Matthew seven, one through six. So the word of God says this, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. and attack you, to attack you. Let's pray again. Father, we are aware of our inadequacies. We're aware of our um, neediness before you. And we come to you now humbly, wanting you to uh, meet those needs in our hearts. We, we come to you trusting in the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, gave his life to pay the penalty that we rightly deserve because we are sinners. We, we trust in Jesus Christ, our hope. Lord, I pray that that truth would permeate, would permeate this message. I, I pray that we would, we would sense that we are right before you because of what Jesus Christ has done, and not alone. Lord, I, I pray for your help this morning. I pray for your help for me as I preach. I pray for your help for us as we hear your word. I pray that we're able to apply it. I pray that it'd be encouraging and edifying and convicting and challenging and do the work that you want to do and need to do in our hearts, we pray, Father. And we pray that we would be open to that and not proud, not distracted, not bent away from you, I pray that you would soften hard hearts. I pray that we'd be malleable, teachable. And I pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. All right, have you ever had an MRI? You know, the magnetic resonance resonance imaging? Anyone ever had that? You don't have to raise your hand, but you ever have an MRI? True story. I met the guy. I met one of the guys who was on. Who was a lead engineer for the team that designed the machine, the MRI machine, not the technology, but the machine uh, that implemented the, the the technology so that so that they can be used in hospitals now. He was obviously way older than I. This came out in the '80s, so he was way older than I am. But um, the guy was brilliant, kind of really nerdy, really really nerdy, but brilliant. Uh, he was a Christian. Um, I had lunch with him one time, but he was on this project for designing the MRI, the medical scanner that hospitals use now. And anyone who is a bit claustrophobic, I mean, if you're, anyone would tell you this, if they have any sort of claustrophobia in them at all, the MRI experience can be really nerve wracking. You're inserted head first into this tube and there's not much clearance between you and the the top or you and the sides. And you can't get out except to be pulled out, right? You're, You're head first, right? You're not gonna, it's, uh, it can be, if you're about to have one, I, I'm, I'm here to encourage you with this. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's rough. You're, it's, uh, you have to fight the urge to freak out. You, you want to freak out in there. And you know that if you do, you're given a pep talk before that. You know that if you do, the images won't come out right and they'll have to do it again. So I asked this fellow, why, why on earth did you design this machine this way? Like seriously, why, why did you design it in a way that would just freak everybody out? And he, his answer was, he basically said, you know, we weren't asked to consider comfort at all. Like that wasn't even like on our radar. We weren't thinking about comfort. The primary objective was to design a machine that could allow this technology to see the body in the most optimal way. All we were thinking about was seeing and the body being exposed. We weren't concerned about comfort. We weren't thinking about claustrophobia. Now I could paraphrase that. I could say the MRI is crafted so that the patient is most exposed to the eye of this machine so that the doctor can see the problem that needs to be addressed. Problems usually hidden by flesh and they can then do the surgery or whatever is needed. So even though it's not comfortable, it can be good for you, right? I mean, that's not comfortable, but good for you. The next time you get an MRI, take comfort that this machine was designed to help you know and the doctors know the issue so that it can be dealt with. Uncomfortable, but good. And in a similar way, this Sermon on the Mount, this amazing sermon that Jesus preached on a hillside 2,000 years ago, it's called Sermon on the Mount because he's preaching on a mount. And it was recorded in Matthew 5-7. through We've been studying it. We studied it all last semester. We're we're here again for a while. This sermon, though amazing and full of encouragements, is also it can be very exposing and very uncomfortable. Like an MRI, this sermon seems crafted by God to expose the issues so that they can be dealt with. Issues generally covered by flesh or by excuses or by justifications or by just sin or even by outward displays of righteousness cloak the problem underneath by showing that we're righteous it is precisely this exposure that we need though it might not be comfortable God by his spirit and by his grace will use it in our lives to deal with the underlying sin of our hearts and point us to God's grace in Christ It might not be comfortable, not at every turn anyway, but it is good for us. You see, the problem in us is far more deadly than any physical issue that you could face. That spiritual issue that could be covered by flesh and sin could be way more dangerous than anything, even a tumor. We need this spiritual MRI so that we might turn to the one surgeon who is able to heal us. We've been working our way through this sermon. Chapter 7 is the final part, so here we are today starting the final part. We'll spend the rest of the winter and the spring, Lord willing, allowing ourselves to be seen and to be exposed and to be helped by the awesome, though sometimes uncomfortable, sermon that Jesus preached. It is the greatest sermon ever preached and very good for us. This particular passage before us today is very practical. And there's a sense in which it is aimed at all of all of us, if you know what I mean. All of all of us. I mean, it's aimed at all of us. I think we all struggle with this particular sin from time to time, the sin of self-righteous judgment. And it's aimed at all of each of us. Meaning it doesn't merely address the outward action of being judgmental, like the way that you say judgmental things, but the heart, seeing others the way that you do. Heart attitude, which, man, doesn't the Bible seem to always go there, unrelentingly so? Goes to the heart. It's like, it's almost as if God is not just primarily interested in the outward things, but is interested in your heart. So, I think this is good for us. This is aimed at the sin of the heart, as well as the sin that takes form in us and shows itself in all of its ugliness. And I think there are two reasons why we need this a lot this morning. Two reasons, they're really just two, two sides of one coin. First, we need this because of the blinding power of this particular sin. I mean, that comes up in this, Jesus alludes to this, right? The blinding power of the sin. He alludes to it with this graphic, even grotesque illustration, a log out of your eye not even noticing that you've got a log sticking out of your eye. We often don't even know when we're being self-righteous and judgy. Thus, we need this these words from our Lord so that that sin will be exposed in us. I need this so I will see it in me. And second, we need this because self-righteousness, self-righteousness is antithetical to turning to the Savior. Or to put another way, People who are well, don't go to the doctor. If you think you're fine and you think that because you just look down your nose at everybody else who's doing less fine than you, you won't turn to Christ. You won't see your need of a savior. So when we think we're well, we don't go to the great physician. The MRI of this passage will show us that we need to go see him, trust him, turn to him by faith, So I'm praying this morning that the Lord might grant us eyes to see that his incredibly penetrating light might expose to us our sin, our self-righteousness, so that we might hold fast to the gospel and that the gospel might have its way in our lives and even with our attitudes towards other sinners. And honestly, I'm praying that God would have his way in our church. I think this is a church-shaping passage, big time. And I am praying that God might use it to continue shaping us for his glory. So take a look with me at verse 1. This is likely one of the most misquoted things that Jesus ever said. I I don't know how many times I've heard people quote this in a way that does not represent at all what Jesus meant. So let's, let's begin pressing into this judge not, that you be not judged by first considering what Jesus did not mean and how we know he didn't mean that, okay? Jesus did not mean that Christians should never call sin, sin. He he did not mean that we should consider with neutrality actions and behaviors which Jesus and the Bible condemns as sin. How do we know that? Well, just consider this passage and then think of the self-defeating ways people use it. Person A says something like, you know, the Bible says blank, is sin. So we should see it as sin. And then person B comes along and says, yes, but Jesus also said, judge not. Person B is not only saying that we should look at that sin with some sort of neutrality, like it's not that bad, or just maybe we shouldn't pass judgment there on that sin. He's also saying that judging something to be sin, even even judging that based on God's word, is itself sin. You see? You see? So, did Jesus mean that the only sin that we should judge is the sin of judginess? And you see how self-defeating that is? Friends, the Bible is full of judgments, and the Bible is full of commands for Christians to make judgments that align with the scriptures. Just just consider the Sermon on the Mount. You, you could even consider this passage. I'll bring one little point out. You could see it in, even in this passage, but look a few verses down from our passage. Look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. I mean, how on earth could... Could we beware false prophets, recognize false prophets, those who who teach and preach things that are contrary to scripture? How could we recognize them by their fruits if we stubbornly insist that Jesus taught that we should never make any judgments at all about what's right and wrong, about what's true and what's false, about what's sin and what's righteousness? And I can think of many places in the New Testament that calls on Christians to specifically call out sin within the body of Christ. Matthew 18 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, several places in 1 and 2 Timothy. We are called to help people who are caught in sin. We're called to protect the church from sin. So how do we do that without judgment? Paul said that the scriptures are good, among other things, for reproof and rebuke. He said that, right? 2 Timothy 3.16. You can't reprove or rebuke without making a judgment. So there is simply no way that Jesus meant do not judge in the broadest possible way as in a Christian is never to make any judgments at all. Identifying sin, calling out sin or even never to confront someone who is in sin. That's not what's in view here, okay? So what does this mean? I think there are two things Jesus says that makes what he means really clear. One is the motivation that he supplies in verses one and two. Why should we be motivated to not judge others in a way that Jesus is here prohibiting? Why should we, what what should motivate us not to do what he's saying not to do? The motivation is because we ourselves would not want to be measured according to the standard by which we're measuring others. In other words, what's in view here is hypocritical judgment. He even uses the word hypocrite in this passage. I commit this sin when I am judging my brother by a standard by which I would not want to be judged. So that's one clue to the kind of judging Jesus is prohibiting here. The other clue is in the word picture he paints for us. You notice this tiny speck in your brother's eye. Why there's this great big log in yours that you don't even even see. So you have this crazy noticeable log and you're still more concerned with the speck in his eye than you are in your own sin. What a picture. Blind to my own sin. Very forgiving of it, right? Like, I don't see my sin that bad, but obsessed with somebody else's. The sin of those around me. That's what Jesus prohibits in in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. He is condemning the critical, self-righteous, double standard, hypocritical, looking down my nose at someone else while not considering my own sinfulness. And there are two stages to how this sin plays out in reality, in our lives. And Jesus condemns both. Look at verse three. Jesus says, why do you see? And then in verse four, he says, how can you say? Those are the two stages So it's not just the interaction based on critical judgment that Jesus condemns. It's the heart level criticism. Why do you even see this speck in your brother's eye and not notice your own log? Or how can you say, let me lend you a hand with that speck when you yourself need a lot of help? It's the heart level thought, the seeing and the action that Jesus is condemning as sinful. How can you be so aware of their sin and so oblivious to your own? Friend, that is something that we need no practice to perfect. This takes no skill at all for you to get very good at judging somebody else in a way that you will not be judged yourself. No skill at all. Comes as natural as breathing. As natural as the sin of pride and self-righteousness. And I think you know this. I think you, I think you agree with this. Just, just intrinsically, we, we feel this. We, we know we're like this. You probably can remember a time when it made you feel kind of good to see another person's sin exposed or a fault made obvious and plain. Noticing a fault in someone else can make you feel just a little bit better about yourself, even if your sin is exactly the same as their sin. This speck is an evil encouragement to your logged up eyes and heart that you're better, that you, f- you feel you like you're better somehow. It's warped, right? It's our sinful nature at work. It- it's the fuel behind most gossiping. It is the kindling of, our, of a numb, self-righteous spirit in one who refuses to confront his own sin. It is the impetus behind pharisaical righteousness. At the end of the day, you, you know why this is so serious? I mean, there's a reason why this is so serious. It's not just because it's ugly. It is ugly. We'll get to that. It's, 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 it's awfully ugly to see and witness. But you know why this is so serious? It's because there is no gospel in this way of thinking at all. Sure, the self-righteous person might claim to know and follow Jesus, but this attitude is not evidence in support of that at all. In fact, it's the opposite you know what the gospel does when it has its way in a man's or a woman's or a child's heart? The gospel brings humility. It doesn't bring boasting. You see, when I grasp my sin, like when I see my sin for what it really is, when I, when I, when I, when I realize that because of my sin, I was condemned before God, I had no hope in this world, I had no way of reconciling myself to a holy God who will not tolerate sin in his presence. When I I understand that I was in fact God's enemy, that I was dead in my sin and my trespasses, I am not proud. And when I contemplate my own sin and then consider the wonderful mercy, totally undeserved by God, this grace that God has bestowed to me in Jesus Christ through his work on the cross, to reconcile this wretched sinner to himself. I am not filled with pride or self-righteousness, but with absolute humility, right? As Paul said in Romans 3.27, the gospel excludes boasting. I have no other boasts, save that Jesus is my savior who died for me and I am found in his righteousness alone. That's not fuel or kindling for self-righteousness, but in grateful, joyful humility. Friend, if we are captured by the gospel, what flows out of us is not some smug, proud condescension to the sin we see in others, but self-aware humility and an inclination towards mercy. Or to put it another way, the fruit of one who has been forgiven as we have seen so many times in this sermon, and we'll see it more, is mercy and forgiveness towards others, not self-righteousness. The church ought to be a place, the church, because of the gospel, because of the way the gospel has had its way in the church, the church ought to be a place where sinners feel the mercy of God, not the condescension of other sinners when we see someone whose marriage is tattering or who is struggling with an addiction or who has been caught in a terrible sin, our first impulse because of the gospel is to wrap our loving arms around that person and aim their hearts towards the mercy and the grace that is found in Christ. Their sin does not make us feel better about ourselves or good in any way. It makes us hurt for them and desire to show God's mercy as we have been shown mercy. I love that Jesus used such a grotesque picture to make his point here. I mean, just picture it. Can you? Can you picture this? Can anyone really picture this? Can you draw this log lodged in your eye? Somebody draw that and send it to me, would you, if you're an artist? Because I can't even imagine it. I'm having a hard time picturing a log lodged in my eye. I love that he used a grotesque image. It's helpful. It's helpful. So this guy's got this log eye and he's like, dude, you can't, can't you see that speck in your eye? You're a sinner. Come here, let me help you. But you gotta watch out for my log. Don't get hit by my log as I help you with your speck. It's a grotesque, ridiculous picture. And it's perfect because Jesus is characterizing a grotesque sin There are few sins as ugly as this one. Now, all sin is ugly. Sin is by nature ugly, right? It's the opposite of what is beautiful and right. So it's ugly. Sin is ugly, but this one is especially ugly when it shows itself in the church. I mean, if you want to be an ugly Christian, if we want to be an ugly church, all we have to do is let this sin go unchecked. That'll do it if you want to have the most uncompelling unattractive testimony to outsiders and to unbelievers walk around with a log in your eye noticing all the specks in others that'll do it look at verse 5 and note how one who has been captured by God's grace should view the sin of others verse 5 says first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye There's a place, there is a place. Jesus even puts it here for us. There's a place for helping one another in this battle against sin that we're all in. But the right way is not to look past your own sin by focusing on someone else's. The right way is to make war on your own sin, to be broken by your sin because of your sin and find your help and forgiveness in the Savior who came to save sinners and then help others. Let the great gospel scapel do its surgery on your eye and then in humility and in love and in mercy help others struggling in the same way. That's the beautiful and helpful picture of the gospel as it works its way out in the church and not the grotesque and ugly picture of self-righteousness. If we engage in the hard and painful work of removing the log from our, from our own eyes, it can then only be mercy that motivates us as we try to help others. Not pride, not self-righteousness. And a person and a people in whom the gospel has had its way is a person and a people who are motivated by mercy. When we live like that, we're, we, then calling out sin looks more like it does in Galatians 6, 1 than it does in Matthew 7, 1. Okay. Look at, Matthew, look at Galatians 6.1 with me, would you? It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's how the gospel works in a church. That's how the gospel works in a Christian We seek to restore in the spirit of gentleness and mindful of our own weaknesses and sin. And then the church becomes a safe place for sinners. Not because the church blindly ignores sin or justifies sin or says something silly like we should never make judgments about sin, but because there is an effort in humility, aware of our own sin and in love to help other sinners find a way out of the the trap of sin in and through the person and work of Christ. Excuse me. Now look with me back in verse six, Matthew 7, 6. It says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you, Matthew 7, 6. Now I admit that's a bit difficult to see how that fits in the logic here. Of understanding verses 1 through 5. I, though, along with the majority of the commentaries that I read on this this week, do believe that it is connected. So I'm gonna offer you what I think is the right interpretation of this, and you can see if it seems compelling based on what you read here, what it says here, in light of what's written here. If the right approach to seeing others and viewing disagreements and the sin of others was a road, and there are two ditches on most roads here in Nebraska, they're like, what, 20 feet deep, <laughs> these ditches on the sides of roads sometimes. So if, 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 if the right approach was a road and there's ditches of danger on either side with, you know, wake-up strips to keep you from veering off the road, one side of the ditch is addressed in verses 1 through 5. Don't drive off the road of proper judgment into the ditch of self-righteousness. self unaware, criticism, and judginess, which isn't a word, but really ought to be. And on the other side of that road, there's another ditch of danger. Don't drive off the road of showing no discernment at all. So don't be judgy and don't be undiscerning. I think that's the main idea, if you put it all together, of Matthew 7, 1 through 6. And the second part of that is where verse 6 comes in. Now note with me, if I'm seeing this rightly, that there is a disparity in the way these two errors are addressed. Me, what I mean is, there are five verses saying, don't be judgy. And one verse saying, don't be undiscerning. If I were to like, illustrate that with just volume, like, to try to help you see the emphasis, I would say something like, don't be judgy and, and don't be undiscerning. And I think that's the emphasis that this passage gives it. I hope that makes sense. I think verse six is so helpful to avoid fruitless arguments and efforts. If Christians took verse six to heart, there wouldn't hardly ever be arguments or controversies. There would sometimes be controversies, but most of them would probably not be what they are. There would never be online disagreements because they're always like this. People just stop listening to each other and call each other sinners. You ever been in one of those? I think I told you once, I, I, I went into one of these one time just as an experiment for you guys for a sermon a long time ago, and really, I set a timer, and I decided I want to see how long it'll be before they just call me an unbeliever. And so I started like thoughtfully engaging, and it was like two minutes before I was like a heretic. Anyway, you should do those nerdy things like that. When someone is not teachable, you will not teach them. I think that's the point. When someone will not hear you, you're not going to help them. So be discerning. If someone is quarrelsome and the outcome is that they will attack you and the pearls you offer will be trampled, just don't go there. Instead, find people who are teachable and teach them the word of God. God's grace and his mercy. I think that's the point of verse six. Now, I want to say with that a word of caution. I think both of these passages are often used as an excuse not to engage someone who needs your engagement. On the one hand, you might see a brother caught in sin, and instead of engaging him in the uncomfortable effort of lovingly confronting that sin, you say something like, Well, I'm not perfect. Who am I to judge? and then failed to engage. And by the way, like that might seem good, but if you think about it, you just left that person to continue walking off into sin without any help when you could have helped I don't think that's what Jesus is calling us here. I think there's a difference between one sinner saved by grace, humbly confronting a brother or sister caught in sin and the self-righteous thing that Jesus is actually condemning. So don't use verses one through five as an excuse not to engage. On the other hand, you might imagine that their response to you would be negative and quarrelsome and then not engaged. It might not be based on anything at all. You might just think, they're not gonna take this well. They're gonna be quarrelsome. So I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to throw my pearls before swine. I would encourage you to be careful not to use verse six as an excuse because you might be surprised. I have often been surprised at the response of somebody who ends up being way more spiritual than I thought that they were. And they, 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 they listen and they uh, humbly respond. So don't use it as a blanche excuse. I'm not going to go there because they might respond badly. They might, they might and that'll, that'll help you see whether you should continue to engage. Meanwhile, man, be faithful, right? Again, I think we need God's discernment. We need God's wisdom to know when to engage and when not to. So let me just wrap this up. Don't be judgy. Let's not act towards one another as if the gospel has not had its way in us. We are all broken, friends, all of us. We all are sinful. We're made from exactly the same stuff. We're all likewise tempted. We all have faults and sins and specks and sometimes logs. We don't boast in our righteousness. We don't boast that we're more righteous than the brother who stumbled. We boast that it is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. They died for you. They died for us. That's our boast. Don't be grotesque. Don't be ugly. Let's not be an ugly church. God has been so merciful to us. That's beautiful. God has been gracious to us. Let's be merciful. Let's be gracious. Let's be a people so captured by that kindness. So humble because of it. So forgiving that we are quick to show mercy. Quick to wrap our arms around the sinner and quick to point them to Christ. A church that is drenched in this beautiful grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness will be the safest place for the sinner, the most compelling testimony of grace, the clearest gospel. And let's be let's not be undiscerning. We should never be wishy-washy or uncaring about the truth. We shouldn't pretend that sin isn't sin. We shouldn't cast our pearls before swine. Let me leave you with the balance that I think Paul struck in his instructions to the Colossian believers. I think I can't think of a church conflict, I can't think of an interpersonal conflict that could survive like Tough scrutiny by this passage, like applying this passage to our lives. So hear how Paul wants us to deal with one another in the church. And note the beauty that this would bring about in the life of a believer and in the life of a church. This is from Colossians three, twelve through seventeen. And I'll just read it to you in closing and then we'll pray. Paul said, Put on then put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a people who are becoming, I pray, I hope, more and more aware of your grace, more inclined to see your actions and thoughts towards us through the lens of the mercy that it is, and therefore less inclined to look at others unmercifully, less inclined to self-righteousness. And Lord, to the measure that we need to grow in this, I pray that it be so. I pray that you would help us to grow, help us to be a people so drenched in mercy and grace that we just, we drip it as we go. People feel it and see it and experience it in us. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.